Welcome to episode 17 of The Toth Zone, a podcast about how an obsession with music gave me a reason to live and also wrecked my life. This is the second to last episode of the season, and the one in which I'll tell you all about how I was arrested for shoplifting. Can you guess what I was shoplifting when I got caught? If you've been paying attention, I bet you can. I'm your host, James Toth. My friend Greg and I remained pals despite my breakup with his best friend, Annie. Greg soon introduced me to the joys of shoplifting. If you were addicted to music but had limited funds, Greg reasoned, shoplifting was a great way of correcting this balance. Greg demonstrated to me all of his brilliant tricks. He knew all the blind spots at the record stores in Manhattan. At Tower Records on Broadway, for instance, the blind spot was directly in front of the Susie and the Banshees bin cart, which was blocked from the camera's view by a large pillar. Greg taught me how to delicately remove the magnetic security tags on CDs using a small razor or a pushpin. You'd cut a neat square around it and stash the removed square of plastic in the stacks. No one in my family ever questioned why for years so many of their Christmas presents were CDs and VHS tapes nor why these gifts always had a neat rectangular shape surgically removed from the cellophane. Greg and I established one rule. We would only steal from chain stores, and never from small businesses. We mostly adhered to this rule. I mean, we were punk rockers after all. There was, however, some gray area. We would often steal expensive things from the local chain stores with the intent of selling the stolen goods back to the independent shops for store credit. I'm guessing a lot of those indie shops knew exactly what we were doing, too. Stealing books was even easier than stealing CDs. Very few mall employees would suspect teenagers of stealing books, so you'd simply walk into Walden Books or B. Dalton and gather up the books you wanted, find a secluded place, set your backpack down, and fill it. Easy breezy. Though we would occasionally do a solo job or two on our own, mostly Greg and I would go shoplifting as a team. At Tower Records, We would load our backpacks with CDs, drop off the booty somewhere safe, and then return for more. My new NYU girlfriend, who lived two blocks from Tower, loved Britpop, and Tower had an entire floor downstairs dedicated to import singles, so I grabbed for her all the pulp, blur, suede, and stone roses discs I could find. In exchange, she agreed to aid and abet us by allowing her dorm room to function as a kind of warehouse, while Greg and I repeatedly returned to the scene of our crime. We began taking custom orders. For my sister, a Reservoir Dogs VHS tape. For her boyfriend, a Nine Inch Nails CD single. It got a little frivolous. At one point I noticed Greg had shoplifted the Batman Returns soundtrack. I kind of like that one Seal song, he sheepishly admitted when I threw him a bit of the gas face. There is a good Sunny Day Real Estate song on there though. Like most criminals, Greg and I never expected to get caught and never really considered the consequences if and when we did. Also like most criminals, we soon got greedy, and that greed led, inevitably, to carelessness. We started making too many trips to Tower in a single day, and employees soon grew suspicious. It wasn't so much our sloppiness that got us caught as the fact that we'd become regulars who didn't buy anything, although occasionally we did just for show. This was one of Greg's great ideas. The Tower employees who noticed us soon alerted the security guards to the fact that something fishy was going on. Greg was the first of us to get caught. I managed to escape while they were apprehending him. Greg later regaled me with tales of Tower's mythical back room. Tower Records declined to press charges against him, Greg said, 
but banned him from the store for an entire year under penalty of arrest. They took his picture with a Polaroid camera and tacked it to a corkboard wall before letting him go. A week or two later, my picture would join Greg's on the Great Wall of Shame. Being privy to the back room of Tower did afford me a perfect view of their security system, where I was able to confirm that Greg was indeed correct. The section near the Susie CDs was absolutely a blind spot. Of course, this no longer mattered. Neither Greg nor I relished the idea of going to jail, and so we decided to avoid Tower Records henceforth. Years later, my friend Greg would hold the distinction of being the only person I have ever known to both front a popular black metal band and run for state assembly. Getting caught stealing at Tower Records was an embarrassment, and I decided to quit shoplifting. I was just shy of 18 years old, and the idea of getting arrested for stealing as an adult was humiliating. It was also well known that once you turned 18, they sealed your juvenile record, or so we'd heard. So it was clear that the window of opportunity for me to commit any crime or misdemeanor for which I might hope to escape relatively unscathed was about to close. Besides, I now had college to think about. Before I quit, though, I planned one final score, a solo mission to the wall, one of the three record stores inside the Staten Island Mall. I was surprised as I entered the wall to find my high school friend Gabby working at the register. I'd always liked Gabby and had always gotten the impression, mostly from how much Annie detested her, that she liked me too. Once in the early days of my relationship with Annie, Gabby scandalously invited me over to her house one afternoon for vegan chili, and Annie went berserk. My decision to decline Gabby's invitation that day felt like a pivotal one, as confirmed by Annie years later. Oh, if you'd gone with Gabby that day, she told me, I was ready to just forget about you. Gabby was bubbly but bright and had tremendous azure eyes. She wasn't cool, at least not by Annie's metric, nor by the standards of the elitist and ultra-discerning Castleton kids. She liked Weezer and Green Day. She resembled a pop-punk Tiffany Amber Thiessen. I found her very attractive. Now that I was no longer dating Annie, I no longer had to feel guilty about talking to Gabby. She smiled at me as I entered the wall and we exchanged a few pleasantries. I then excused myself to attend to the business at hand, wondering idly if Gabby still had her recipe for vegan chili. I made quick work of removing the security tags from several CDs and stuffed the booty into the waistband of my underwear. I nabbed Guided by Voices' brand new Under the Bushes Under the Stars, Spain's Blue Moods of Spain, and Elvis Costello's Blood and Chocolate. I was almost to the door when I made my fatal mistake. I made a detour to the counter to say goodbye to Gabby. Before I could escape, the young store manager approached me and demanded to know where I put the CDs he saw me holding. I told him I'd return them to where they had been. Uh-huh, he said, incredulous. Are you sure they aren't here? He punctuated his last word by swatting the back of his hand against my midsection which was of course lined with contraband, and made an incriminating thwack sound on contact with his knuckles. I was busted. Now, my friend Greg, mastermind of the misdemeanor that he was, had once shared with me a particular shoplifting loophole. It wasn't officially considered shoplifting until you actually left the store with merchandise. Up to that point, it was perfectly legal to stuff things into your bag and even into your pockets and down your pants as long as you intended to pay for them. Is this true? Somebody check. I have no idea. In any case, unfortunately, I didn't think of any of this in time, and before I knew it, I was being led by the store manager into the back room for my interrogation. Now, having recently weathered a similar interrogation by the intimidating loss prevention sumo wrestlers at Tower Records, 
I felt very calm as this soggy, saltine cracker of a man began to put the screws to me. So I guess you think you're some kind of badass because you shoplift CDs. A badass? What was this guy talking about? I held my composure, though I'm sure my obnoxious smirk only ratcheted up the tension. Why are you stealing CDs from my store? demanded Saltine Cracker Man. This was rich. Low-level store employees like Saltine Cracker Man always refer to the corporate places they worked as their store, as if the CEOs and shareholders gave a rat's ass about them. Well, for one thing, CDs are expensive, I riffed. Not sure where I was going with this. Stealing uh, sends a message, I explained. Oh, now I see, said the saltine cracker man facetiously. You're sticking it to the man. Something like that, I said, suddenly feeling like some thrasher magazine Marlon Brando. How do you think Gabby would feel if she knew you were stealing from her store? Ah, there it was. Suddenly I realized what was going on. Saltine Cracker Man witnessed me chatting with Gabby, on whom he'd undoubtedly had designs, and was jealous. This was personal, vengeful, Animal Kingdom shit. Oh, I said, legitimately considering his question. I don't think she'd care. Gabby doesn't own the store. She just works here, just like you. Anyway, I'm not trying to date Gabby, man. At this, Saltine Cracker Man went scarlet with rage and began stammering. I was on to him. I'd hit a nerve. Well, I'd like you to know that mall security is on their way, wise guy, he said, rising. And when they get here, I'm having them press criminal charges against you. I shrugged. Now, my indifference wasn't an act or a pose meant to provoke. I genuinely didn't care. Soon I'd be leaving Staten Island and all this bullshit behind. And anyway, I assumed he was bluffing. I knew there wasn't enough merchandise recovered from my pants to warrant any serious charge. The mall cops arrived looking meek, bewildered, and ineffectual, as all mall cops do. I caught him stealing these, relayed Saltine Cracker Man, motioning to the small pile of CDs on the table. As you can see, he's real broken up about it, he added sarcastically. Like I said, personal. The mall cops shrugged. Well, what do you want us to do? I want to press charges, he said. In that case, you better call the police. Ah, the real cops. Now at this point I still consider the possibility that Saltine Cracker Man might be bluffing. Looking back, I can definitely see that my attitude probably didn't help matters. But pressing charges for $40 worth of merchandise seemed excessively punitive. Tower Records, given the amount of merchandise they found on me and Greg when we were eventually caught, could have probably legitimately charged us with grand larceny. Instead, all they did was tack our photographs to the wall and tell us to get lost. But to the guys at Tower Records, Greg and I were small potatoes. Saltine Cracker Man, on the other hand, likely viewed his apprehension of a thief as a ticket to a promotion or a raise. Maybe even a date with beautiful Gabby. Two real police officers arrived and read me my rights. Admittedly, this was new. I'd been stopped, threatened, even detained by police many times, but this was my first actual Miranda. Still, the whole thing felt ridiculous and petty. I knew that what I'd committed was a minor offense, and I'd read enough advice on arrest stuff in punk fanzines to know my rights, so I kept my mouth shut. The cops must have interpreted this silence as defiance or unrepentance, because the younger of the two officers immediately began to get nasty with me. Our squad car is parked right downstairs, smart guy, said bad cop. But we're going to take the long way around the mall on purpose, just so everyone can see you being arrested. True to their weird threat, 
the cops sadistically paraded me in cuffs through the entire mall. On the way out, I spotted Paul's mom in front of Sears. I was hoping she wouldn't notice me, but she did. I lifted my handcuffed wrists at the elbow and waved at her with my fingers. Upon entering the police car, I tried, at first in vain, to make small talk. Hey, how do you guys determine whether to cuff a suspect's arms in the front or the back, I asked, genuinely curious. Maybe I can get a fanzine article out of this. Shut up, barked the bad cop. This was a charade, a routine scare job, and all three of us knew it. Seeing that I wasn't about to be scared straight on a petty misdemeanor charge, but also realizing that I posed no particular threat, good cop began to warm to me a bit, and the tone in the squad car gradually began to change. As with every cop who has ever detained me, good cop inexplicably asked me what my father did for a living. Why do they do this? He's an industrial designer, I said, a prepared in advance line I'd repeated many times. For years, I didn't even know what an industrial designer actually did, and I hoped neither did the cops. It just sounded good and believable. I fabricated this lie to protect my father's reputation. The last thing I wanted was for word to spread that Officer Toth's kid was busted for shoplifting CDs at the mall. I informed Good Cop that I was planning to go to college in the fall, and that I was an anarchist. By now I was clearly fucking with them a bit, but given their demeanor and how quickly the cop had softened once we began chatting, it seemed all in good fun. Anarchist, huh? asked Good Cop, amused. I don't think that would work too well in the real world. Well, we all have a right to our opinion, I said, diplomatically. Just then the cruiser passed an attractive woman on the street. I wouldn't mind a piece of her opinion, said Bad Cop, motioning to the woman. So gross. I don't remember what happened next, only that I was fingerprinted and given permission to make a phone call. I decided to call Nanny. And Nanny was the last person in the world I wanted to disappoint, but I also knew that she would go easiest on me. Nanny expressed grave disappointment, but bailed me out, and I'm not sure anything else ever came of it beyond the subsequent receipt of a trespass notice, informing me that I was henceforth prohibited from visiting the mall, which I intercepted before my parents could see it. My shoplifting days were over for good. I never saw Gabby again. A few days later, I received my acceptance letter from SUNY Purchase. The letter informed me that based on my essay and my academic record, I was the kind of student the school would be proud to have on campus. I was a high school dropout and a convicted shoplifter who'd recently been dishonorably discharged from a job at Taco Fucking Bell. And now I was headed to art school. Oh, the places I'd go. I reread the acceptance letter and I began to laugh. I laughed so hard. I couldn't stop laughing. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to be alerted about new episodes. Please tell your friends about the Toth Zone. You can find me on Twitter at JimmyJackToth and on Patreon at patreon.com slash thetothzone. Now next week is the 18th and final episode of this podcast, at least the final episode of the season. For episode 18, I'll be wrapping things up and explaining that whole music wrecked my life thing, as well as answering some questions and discussing some possible ideas for season two. Till then, take care. This is The Toth Zone.